I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. Hi, everyone. It's hard to believe that I'm recording the 31st podcast episode for Real Stories with Dr. Megan Corrado. It's it's another example of this idea that I have, and I, I go for the idea, but I don't quite know where it's going to take me or where it's going to go. So I have to say it's been an incredible experience to be able to have conversations with people that I know, some people that I've known for years, for decades, um, and to take the time to ask people about their narratives and to hear all the different diverse perspectives um, that people are having to the same questions, um, it's just, it's really mind-blowing. And to be honest, I created this podcast um, in an effort to encourage other people in the midst of the pandemic and all the multiple crises, national, global, that we're navigating. But what I've also found is, is even though I developed this to encourage other people, it encourages me. Every podcast episode that I have listened to has touched me in some way, has connected me in some way. So I'm going to spend this podcast episode talking to you all about the story behind stories. Um, so it's kind of this, this interesting approach because I developed a trauma narrative intervention to help other people tell their narratives. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit of the narrative behind the trauma narrative intervention. I do want to point out that you might hear some background noise. So in the midst of the pandemic and everything else that was going on, the traumas that I was facing and navigating, I ended up getting a puppy. And I got a Dalmatian puppy. And she is 13 weeks. Her name is Dream. Right now, we are sitting in a car. Um, I don't know if you heard her whimper. We're sitting in the car because um, if we were in the house, she would be running all over the place, biting and chewing on things she's not supposed to bite and chew on, and distracting me from being able Able to talk, but for some reason she's pretty quiet in the car, although you might hear some noise here and there. Um, I wanted to wait for the perfect moment to record this episode, but then I realized there's no such thing as a perfect moment. There's just some moments that are better than others, and we have to do the best that we can with the time that we have, with the resources that we have. So um, all of that to say, if you hear any background noises, um, this isn't my perfect moment to record, but it's the best time that I have to be able to um, talk to you all about the story behind stories. So Stories is celebrating its fifth anniversary. So we just reached a really significant business milestone. So I've been in business for five years. I've been doing trauma narratives with people um, for many more years than five, but um, formalizing the process, giving it a name. Um, it, it's been five years, so it's really exciting to say that we are celebrating our five-year anniversary. We're also celebrating the creation of nine resources, 20 tra training programs, and 5,000 trainees. Um, if you had told me that um, my idea was going to expand and grow and people were going to be using it nationally, internationally, I wouldn't have believed you. I have to be honest. Um, I, I created the first uh, set of resources. There's Dream Whimpering. You're okay. You are all right. Um, I created this first set of resources um, thinking that I was going to develop them, people were going to use them, and then that would be it. But then over time, as I um, kind of spread the word and other people spread the word for me as well, um, I was able to uh, kind of 
watch as one door open and another door open and all these doors open um, to the point that now I'm celebrating five years and 5,000 trainees. So it's been exciting to watch stories evolve. If you had told me at the beginning that I would be where I am now, I would not have believed you. I would have bet my money against myself, um, as bad as that sounds. Um, but just watching and seeing something that you envision to grow and develop and take turns beyond what you ever in your wildest dreams could imagine has just been uh, an amazing thing to sit back and reflect on. So those of you who have heard me speak, um, those of you who've listened to other podcast episodes, um, who have visited the website for stories, you see that I'm constantly re repeating a phrase that for every story of trauma, there are always stories of strength and resilience. And that's absolutely the case in my life as an individual. And it's also the case as I reflect back on my experience creating story, stories, the story behind stories. So as I'm supporting other people and telling their stories, I'm, I'm helping them think about um, where have they been, positive and negative? Where are they now, positive and negative? And where do they want to go? And um, I'm kind of reflecting on that with you today during this episode. Where have I, where has stories been? Um, where are we now and where do we want to go? And also part of the narrative process um, as I'm supporting other people and telling their narratives, as I'm training helpers, um, counselors, uh, professionals, social workers, therapists, teachers, grandparents, after school program leaders, how to help other people tell their narratives, I'm also encouraging them to remember as well um, to identify both positive and negative experiences that contribute to their stories. So I'm going to share some of the positive and the negative experiences that I that I had as I develop the stories trauma narrative intervention. I'm going to be honest with you all. I'm going to be open with you all. Some of the things I have not necessarily said on the public platform, but I think it's important. Um, I think it's important to know that for every idea, um, there are also kind of barriers that you will face. For every success, there will be a million different challenges. And we, we take the good with the bad, the trauma with the, with the strength. We take the adversity with the triumph. So uh, it's, always, it's always difficult for me to think about where my idea for stories began. And I think part of that is because uh, stories kind of organically arose from my own experiences um, as a trauma survivor and also um, my professional path. And, and there was a point in time where all these things merged together and um, an idea came up for me and I pursued it. So it's like, it's hard to find like one definitive moment where I'm saying, okay, this is where stories began. But I believe that that stories began in my early childhood. Um, even before I was born, um, there was trauma. There was also strength and resilience. There was death, there was pain, there was loss, but then there was also determination and resilience. And as a child, I experienced multiple forms of trauma and I, I never called them traumas. It's interesting. So um, the language that we use to describe our experiences is oftentimes very different from how other people would describe our experiences. So some people might call my early childhood experiences trauma. I didn't, um, but I did face adversity. I did face multiple layers of stress. Um, but yet 
in the midst of all of that, I was still able to um, find writing as, as a way for me to express myself. I would write stories, fictional stories. I would journal. So stories about myself. Um, I also uh, was creative. I like to think about things in new and different ways. Some of my ideas were good and some of my ideas were terrible, but um, but I have to say that as a kid, my creativity was cultivated. Um, even when the ideas uh, were not the best ideas in the world, I was still encouraged to be myself and to pursue new ways of thinking and being and to experiment and, and to creatively play. And I also read a lot as a kid. That was uh, one of my escapes from all of the, the um, conflict that was happening, um, from the stress I was experiencing. I could, I could open up a book and I could enter into a different world. Um, and then when I was writing, I could create my own world as well. So I, I was the, the teenager who was always helping her friends. Actually, I think that started more in elementary school where people would come to me with their problems and I would listen to them. And when people were in conflict, I would also help them navigate the conflict that they had amongst them. And I would know not to tell one group what the other group said, because then I knew like, then everyone wouldn't feel comfortable to talk to me. And I wanted to be a neutral enough party so that multiple people could come to me and talk to me about what it was that they were going through. So I was helping different people through a lot of serious challenges, through various traumas. And then when I was gonna graduate from high school, I discovered that there was a career called social work. And I was like, oh, so I can get paid to do what I've already been doing, which is to help and listen to other people. So that is what um, got me into the social work, um, social work profession. I found a career that connected me um, in a professional way to things that I already inherently knew how to do and things that I had already been doing for years. As an undergraduate student, I was really interested, I was fascinated with the idea of trauma. And it wasn't something that was being talked about in depth. So I started my, my uh, program in, in undergrad in 2004. And I, uh, I was studying as much as I could about trauma. So I was um, looking things up from my papers, for my projects, for my presentations, everything surrounded this idea of trauma and how trauma impacted people. And I was also looking at how different um, creative arts helped people to process trauma. I remember interviewing a music therapist and I found this music therapist. I, I Googled music therapist in the Philadelphia area and I found her. And it's funny because um, we actually reconnected a couple of years ago ago and it was amazing I recognized her name and I'm like oh my goodness we're presenting at the same conference sorry that's the puppy um I'm like oh my goodness we're presenting at the same com conference um and you introduced me to the creative arts as a way to help people heal from trauma um so that that was a really exciting thing to kind of see things come full circle but I did an honors project as an undergraduate student dream you got to sit down, okay? I'm recording I'm recording my podcast episode. You're making a lot of background noise, all right? You're all right. We're going to relax, you know? So um, I did an honors project as an undergraduate student. And my honors project, um, I actually looked in the research and the literature to understand trauma, all these major concepts surrounding trauma and how trauma impacts people. And then I took that information and I used it to inform the development of a novel. And the name of my novel is called The End. And um, not many people have read the novel. I did, after I graduated, try to, um, try to, find, try to find an agent for the novel. Um, 
had had feedback, but then I decided to kind of move on with other life ventures. I might go back to it um, at some point, but the the narrative is about um, a girl named Salome who lives in the inner city and she plays the piano and, and she plays the piano as her escape from from trauma, from parentification, um, from challenges. And she um, she then loses the piano, um, loses her interest, her ability to play because there there's a trauma that she experiences associated with the piano. So the book is about her um, her loss of her artistic strategy, her artistic medium, but also how she's able to find it again little by little. So I, I wrote this novel and I did this interactive um, creative presentation as my honors project. And um, also as, as a uh, as an undergraduate student, I was also writing stories and they weren't always the most popular stories, I have to admit. Um, I was the editor of our school newspaper and um, I was like the provocative editor that was like writing all of these um all of these editorials about social justice and, and racism and other topics that people didn't necessarily want to confront and talk about um, head on. Um, I still have some of those articles and I'm like, when I, <laughs> when I look back on them, I have them in this big binder. I'm like, wow, I was bold. Um, I think now I am still bold, but I've also um, learned how to channel my boldness in different ways. Sometimes it's by being direct and sometimes it's by like thinking creatively about how to project my boldness. But I'm like, wow, I had no fear as an undergraduate student talking about the racism in the institution and the lack of understanding about um, privilege and oppression. Um, so as you can see, writing has kind of always been a part of my life. It's always been a way that I've been able to express myself um, to highlight injustice, to highlight strength and resilience. So I, I went on from, after I got my undergraduate degree in social work, I then went on to get my master's degree. And um, during my master's program, I loved it. I learned how to be a critical thinker. I uh, also, once again, focused a lot on trauma. And I also began to um, identify additional ways that people can heal from trauma through the creative and expressive arts. So that's what all of my papers, all my assignments, I was focusing on that. I was very passionate about learning not only about trauma impact, but also on trauma recovery and um, the way that the arts support people in recovering from trauma. So after I graduated from my master's degree, I graduated really idealistic, um, really excited, enthusiastic about how I was going to help people transform their pain into uh, resilience and into strength. And... Uh, I started off working in residential treatment facilities too at the same time. And I was working with kids who'd experienced multiple forms of trauma and also kids who were adjudicated, dependent, adjudicated, delinquent, um, kids with labels, labels like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, like conduct disorder, um, like someone who was sexually abused, someone who was physically abused. And people would say things to me that I was just really kind of appalled by. People would say things like, well, good luck getting, getting anything out of this kid. And I would look at them like, why are you helping someone if you don't believe in their ability to change? If you don't believe in their ability to grow and bounce back from the things that they've experienced? Like if we don't have hope for people as providers, um, how can we support people who are traumatized and finding their sources of hope. So um, 
I, I was like, okay, I kind of took what people said with a grain of salt and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep my hope and I'm going to keep my strengths-based perspective, even if the system that's supposed to help my clients is not holding space for hope in their interactions with them. So um, I was learning different things. So I learned things in my undergrad program, in my master's program, and then I was also earning certificates, um, trauma-focused certificates, um, and also certificates in things like CBT, because I really wanted to strengthen my repertoire of skills as a clinician. And um, I also had, you know, my own artistic and creative background as well. So I was taking what I knew and I was listening to my clients and I was taking what I had learned about trauma and I was um, identifying ways to put all these things together to help my clients tell their trauma narratives. And the trauma narrative is something that I had learned about in the trainings and in the, in the literature that I had read, um, this storytelling process that is therapeutic and supports people in, in navigating their past experiences and moving forward in the future. But when I actually looked for information about how to help somebody tell their trauma narrative, the, the resources were really sparse. So I was, I was kind of integrating the knowledge and the experiences that I had as a creative person and also as a scholar to figure out how to support these clients that people told me, you know, good luck and never getting anything out of them. I was putting all of that together to help them tell their stories. And my puppy, come on puppy. All right, you're okay. Um, so I, it was amazing what I learned from the clients that I supported. And I was helping people tell their trauma narratives since 2009. I graduated with my master's in 2009 and I was helping people tell their trauma narratives beginning in 2009. And the things that I learned, the things that I saw, the things that I um, experienced along with the clients as they told their narratives, um, I felt honored. I also felt um, sad by all of the different sources of adversity that they have faced, but I also felt hopeful because I knew that if they were able to overcome all the challenges that they had faced um, so early on in life, that that also meant that they could overcome challenges in the present and the future too. And I'm smiling as I say that because once again, for every story of trauma, there are always stories of strength and resilience. Um, I'm thinking about one of the first teenagers that I helped to create their story. So um, it didn't have a name. It wasn't called stories yet. Um, it wasn't like a formalized process. So I was taking what I knew, listening to clients, trying to meet them where they were. Um, if things weren't necessarily working, I would change up. Um, I would change up my approach. And one of the kids that I helped to create um, their narrative, they have a really in-depth narrative. And this was this is, was one of the kids that people told me good luck getting anything out of him. Um, he came into the facility having used multiple substances, selling multiple substances, multiple forms of trauma, um, demonstrated violence in the community. And I said, you know what? Um, I believe there's that, that this child has a story and I want to help them have space to tell their story. So um, when I tell you this narrative was detailed, it was detailed. There are pages and pages of this teenager talking about their trauma and also talking about their triumph and how they were able to survive things, things like watching their best friend die in their arms, things like um, having abusive caregivers, things like... Uh, 
not knowing who they were and not living up to their potential um, because of all the things that they were surviving. And then also kind of stories of this person getting back up again over and over and over again. So as we were finishing um, the narrative, I asked if there was like a creative way that he wanted to, um, I don't know, capture different parts of his narrative. And he said that he wanted to include pictures. Um, so we went back into the community where many of his traumas happened. And we actually took pictures of the different places that were part of his story. So um, he, he took me to the block where he used to sell drugs. Um, he showed me a the window of the house where he would hide things um, so that he wouldn't get arrested or caught by the police. And he also showed me, um, he showed me an abandoned warehouse where he would sell drugs and where sometimes he would sleep. He showed me uh, the roof of an abandoned building where he slept one night. Um, actually, it was for a couple nights because um, he gotten kicked out of the house because of his his um, reckless behavior. And in order to get there, so we had to like trudge through mud. I'm like, are we supposed to be back here? Um, it was this abandoned warehouse in the middle of North Philly. I'm like, is this safe? And he's like, Miss Megan, I got you. Like, we're all right. I'm like, okay. Um, and then I had on my work clothes and I had to wear dress work clothes back then. So I had like these moccasins and I'm like sludging through the mud um, in North Philly near an abandoned warehouse. And and he wanted to show me where he had to sleep because that was, you know, a part of his narrative. We went back there. My, my shoes got stuck in the mud a couple of times, but I figured out how to keep trudging forward. And um, we took a picture of the roof and on the roof there was graffiti his his uh, street name in graffiti on the roof and it was still there and um we collected all these pictures and we put together put it together as his narrative um the pictures the words the experiences the feelings the thoughts um the triumphs the challenges the victories and that was his story and um i remember just how how much of a sense of pride and accomplishment he felt at being able to tell his story. And I also, I was proud of him. And I was also proud of myself for taking that risk with him, despite the fact that the um, that the place that was providing, the, the agency that was providing him with services didn't have much hope for him. I was really proud of myself for um, for still having hope, even if the system did not support that hope. So uh, I, I worked in a lot of different settings as, as a social worker um, all throughout my career and early on in my career. So that was one of my first work experiences. And then another one of my early work experiences was um, being in charge of a whole caseload of 50 kids with mental health, um, uh, emotional uh, regulation challenges, grief and loss and trauma. And, um, you know, I'm like, I'm newly graduated. And they trusted me with all these kids and basically I got a list in a room and the room was, was bare, empty, boring. And the list was just different names, different grades and their teachers. And I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know how I was going to support them. How was I going to see 50 kids every week? And I developed a program. Um, we, we did all types of really amazing things. We used something called goal attainment scaling, where I had each of them come up with a goal and every week they would work toward that goal and they would assess themselves on how they were doing on the goal. And then their teacher would assess them. And then every Friday, we would have reward days um, during their lunch periods where they'd have pizza and be able to play games together. 
we did really uh, fun and exciting things together. We used to use, um, so, so I created a stage in the room and the stage was created uh, with tape. So I taped um, a rectangle on the floor and that was the stage. And I had all these different props, these used things, um, dress up materials, um, clothes, scarves, um, uh, magic wands, uh, lightsabers, all these different props that the kids could use. And they would act out their challenges. They would act out how to interact with each other in socially appropriate ways. They would act out the conflict they were experiencing in the classroom and, and in their communities. And we'd also have, um, we'd have uh, tea parties where I was like, you know what? The kids don't really know how to like interact with each other in healthy, socially appropriate ways. Let's have a tea party. So they dressed up, um, had clothes that they changed into because um, they had uniforms at the schools, but they, they brought their tea party clothes, whatever those were for them. Um, they got dressed up and for, for the, for the uh, boys, we also had, um, we had a, a sports day interaction where we talked about sportsmanship and we talked about um, how do we interact with people even when things don't go our way. And we just, I had the freedom and the ability to just kind of have an idea and pursue it. Um, I think about other work experiences that I had, um, work experiences working in the community and also in hospitals. Um, I worked in a lot of different places, all surrounding um, youth who've experienced trauma, but I've been able to see a lot. I've seen a lot of pain. I've seen um, people collapse as someone died in front of them. I've seen um, people at their lowest points. I've seen people relapse. I've seen people um, allow the ugliest parts of themselves to um, to be exposed. And I've also seen hope I've seen growth there's this image that that I recently incorporated into training that I'm creating and it's it's an image of an abandoned space and there's uh, this concrete and in the middle of this abandoned space in the concrete there is a rose that's growing and this idea of a rose growing from concrete is an image that is like is imprinted is imprinted um, in my mind and on my heart, this idea that despite all of the difficult, hard, impossible scenarios that people are faced with throughout their lives, that they're still able to get back up again, to grow, to develop. And I saw that over and over and over again. So um, as I was working and as I was kind of continuing to create trauma narratives with the children and the teenagers that I was working with, I was experiencing even more trauma. Um, I don't know at what point I realized that the things that I had been through early in life and the things that I was going through as an adult were trauma. I didn't call these experiences trauma, but at some point it hit me like a ton of bricks where I was like, I was reading something and I was like, oh my goodness, this is me. Like, this is not just about the other person. Like, this is me. And then I was like, wait, does this mean that I'm a trauma survivor? Um, and it took a little while for that to sink in. And I'm still a little bit hesitant to say that. Um, just because I don't know, it's not it's not necessarily words that I use to describe my own experiences. But um, at some point in time, I, I realized and accepted the fact that, 
yeah, the things that I had been through were traumas and I was a trauma survivor too. And that as I was learning and studying and earning certificates and, and educating my clients and connecting with other professionals, that it wasn't just about us versus them. It wasn't about the traumatized versus the untraumatized, but that I was in this together. We're all in this together. We're all at different stages of healing and recovery. And all of us have pain in our narratives, but all of us also have strengths and sources of resilience. So I, I was going through a lot of trauma, even as I was as I was providing services and supports to people. And I don't talk in detail a lot about the traumas that they that I have been through. I'll talk about some of the things vaguely, but um, it's still really painful to talk about things in all their detail. Um, sometimes I would wipe my tears away um, right before I got out of the car to go to work. And I found in helping other people strength and I found a reason to keep going, even when for myself, I wanted to quit, even even when my trauma threatened to defeat me, helping other people process their trauma helped me to keep going. So I kept reading books, I kept reading articles, um, I kept attending conferences, seminars, certificate programs, and I kept on um, learning about myself and learning about my own experiences of trauma and what they they meant for my life and how they had impacted me. So I applied to a PhD program. So um, what I what I what I discovered was that a lot of people were excited about this trauma narrative process that I was doing with other people, but um, they didn't know how to do it themselves. They're like, this is so amazing that you're creating trauma narratives with, with kids and with teenagers. We would love to do it, but we don't know how. And that's kind of the same boat that I was in. And that's why I was developing my own process because I knew that this was important, but nobody had taught me how. So I was like, you know what? I can sit around and wait for somebody else to create this process, or I can say I'm creating the process. I see the need. How can I help to, to fill the gaps to meet the need? So I applied to a PhD program because I really wanted to start digging into this idea of the trauma narrative. And I was rejected. And I have to admit that I was really hurt. So um, I knew many of the people at this college. And I, I was really confident about my interview. And I was really excited about the possibility of earning a PhD from this really prestigious school. And um, I received a, a notification saying that I wasn't the, the right fit for them and I was rejected. And I have to admit that really hurt. Um, I knew that I had this really important idea and I didn't know how it was gonna change people's lives or how it was gonna inspire hope in people um, more broadly, but I just had that feeling that I needed to figure out ways to get this out here out there to a larger audience and I thought that being in this PhD program would help me do that but um, I processed my feelings about that and then I applied to a PsyD program so that's like a clinical doctorate in psychology so this this particular school was very much um, very much emphasized CBT cognitive behavioral therapy and I feel like the program was a really high quality school um, they had a very good reputation. 
um, I was accepted, but it just didn't feel right. So I was like, oh, I could get into the program. I think I would be successful in the program, but am I going to be able to really explore the trauma narrative, creativity, and trauma healing in the way that I that that I would like to, and in a way that helps me to express my voice in a way that is really authentic and real for me. And um, I felt like, uh, no, I, I don't know that I can be my full self and express my full voice in this program. So I actually, um, I decided not to go to the program. Um, it's funny. So I worked for a little bit longer and then I reapplied to that same program that I was accepted in. And I was rejected the second time. I was like, what? I can't believe this. Like, I was just accepted here like a year and a half ago. And now you're telling me no. Um, I had to process my feelings about that as well. Um, so I'm sharing these things with you to know so that you know that um, the process of developing something, creating something that you believe in is not just this uphill battle. There's a lot of barriers and challenges that we face along the way. So I, then I applied at University of Pennsylvania, and it was always one of my dreams to get a degree from an Ivy League university. So um, I, I had actually just lost my job contract um, when I went in for my interview for the um, DSW program at Penn. And I was an independent contractor at a job where I had worked for years and years. And as an independent contractor, at any point in time, your employer can say, listen, that, you know, thank you for your work, don't come back to work. And that's actually what happened. And it was very, that talk about work trauma and systemic trauma. There was a lot of trauma that we had collectively experienced um, as employees at that job. And I had just lost my job contract. And I was, I went to Penn for an interview and I was late. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, they're not even gonna consider me for the DSW because I'm late. Um, and I was late because of all the trauma that I was experiencing, all the stress, the adversity, trying to figure out, you know, what I, what was I going to do for bills? Like, where was I going to live? Um, what was I going to do next? How was I going to be able to support myself? Um, but I went to the interview anyway. I apologize for being late. Um, I expressed myself the best way that I could, answered all the questions. And I left feeling very dejected, like, well, at least I was able to, you know, have an interview at Penn. Now, um, I wasn't expecting things to go anywhere. So I actually, after that, I lost my apartment. And I was living in a room in my grandmom's house, which was uh, really difficult for me. I'm a very independent person, and I don't really like to have to be in positions where I'm fully reliant on other people. And I, I was working a job that was that was difficult. Um, I did enjoy the job. So I was actually a psychiatric social worker and I was helping to determine who should be hospitalized, um, children and teenagers who should be hospitalized, um, who were, they were brought to the hospital. And then I had to do an assessment, a safety risk assessment to determine whether or not they needed to stay or what services and supports they needed. And it's just so ironic. Um, so it was ironic before this job because I was helping people navigate trauma even as I was navigating trauma. And then with this job, I was helping people navigate through crises and identify ways to keep themselves safe and to keep themselves going even when I was trying to keep myself going. That was a very dark um, time in my life. So um, one day I received a piece of mail from 
uh, and it came to my grandmother's house and it was from the University of Pennsylvania. So I saw the letter, I was like, mm, do I wanna open this now? And I was just sure it was just gonna be a rejection letter. I opened the letter and it said that I was accepted into, into the doctoral program at the University of Pennsylvania and that they wanted me to start in the fall. This was the fall of 2013. Um, this was like a, a ray of hope and light in the midst of a lot of darkness that I was experiencing. And I was like, oh my goodness. So my grandmother lives in Maryland. So in, in University of Pennsylvania is in Philly. So I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna get back up to Philly. Um, my job is in Maryland, but I'm gonna figure it out. So I actually, uh, I didn't have a job, but I decided I was going back up to Philly because I had to accept this, um, I had to accept this letter of acceptance and I had to begin my educational journey at University of Pennsylvania. So I was like, you know what? I'm going up to Philly. I don't have a job, but I'll figure it out. So I started doing independent contract work. Um, but as you know, in order to move into a place, um, you have to have you know enough money to have your security deposit and the things that you need for your new place. So um, in the meantime, I lived with a friend and this friend had a basically a house that nobody was living in. And there was no electric in the house. And she's like, listen, there's no electric, but you know, feel free to stay there if it would be helpful to you. So I said, okay. So I was, I was living in a house with no electric. Um, so that also meant like I couldn't have, I couldn't go grocery shopping. I couldn't put anything in the refrigerator. I couldn't, I didn't have um, hot water. I didn't have lights. I didn't have something to, to use to charge my laptop. But I was in Philly and I was in my doctoral program and I was like, however, however this needs to happen, it's just going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. So uh, I spent a lot of late nights in the library at University of Pennsylvania, the, the Van Pelt Library. They stayed open until I think 12 o'clock in the morning. So I would stay there doing my work. Um, there was light. There was hot water when I needed to wash my hands after using the bathroom. Um, there were outlets for me to be able to charge my laptop and my phone. And there were also the books that I needed so that I could um, I could, I could complete my papers and my assignments. And uh, I spent a lot of time too in Panera. So Panera is like my thinking spot, my spot, um, my comfort thinking spot where I go just to sit down and um, to get things done in a focused way. And there was a Panera near the house and um, I would sit in there. There was one booth that had an outlet and I would like scope out that booth to make sure, you know, that I, I was up next for the booth if somebody else was sitting in it. And I brought my all-in-one printer scanner copier into Panera hit it on the seat in the booth and will print off my papers. And I got A's all that semester and nobody knew that um, I was living in, an, in, in practically an abandoned house with no electricity, but I was getting all of my work done and I was getting my A's and that was what was important to me. So eventually um, after a few months, I, I did move into my own place. And I remember the first night I moved in there, I didn't have any of my stuff. All of my stuff was in a storage unit, except for like the clothes on my back, um, my phone, my laptop, and I didn't care. I went in there. I turned in every last light and I turned on the water and I was like, yes, hot water. And I laid on the floor and I went to sleep and I slept like a baby. 
So um, during my doctoral studies at Penn, I decided that I really wanted to focus my dissertation work on the trauma narrative. So I really wanted to dig into the literature to have a really deep and meaningful understanding of why trauma narratives are important to the healing process. And then uh, UPenn actually allows you to do a creative dissertation. And that's not the case for many other colleges and universities. Um, many of them just want you to do a traditional dissertation. Um, but Penn allows you to do a, a creative dissertation. And I decided I wanted to create a curriculum for other people to be able to follow. And I wanted to dig in the literature to get the theoretical support for why trauma narratives are important. So, um, yeah, all throughout the development of stories, I've, I've funded myself. Um, I've had institutional support. I had support from Penn um, at different points in time. I had support from Bremar. Have support from other like leading trauma greats who also have um, who are connected with nonprofits and also with um, colleges and universities. But uh, no, I had just gotten just gotten this place after being um, virtually homeless, and. But I was determined that I wanted to come out with a finished product um, to help people tell their trauma narratives. But as you all know, having a finished product costs money. So I figured out ways to fund myself so that I could develop um, two initial resources and a set of 10 video clips to support people in telling their trauma narratives. So uh, I had this idea that I wanted to take this really heavy theoretical literature about trauma and trauma healing, and I wanted to translate it in a way that made sense to people, a way that made sense to the urban youth that I was interacting with, that I was providing support to, that engaged them, that also let them know that they were not alone, and also led them through um, the process of telling their trauma narrative in a simple and clear way. So uh, I developed these, these two resources, the first two stories resources, stories a guide for therapists and stories a guide for children and teenagers. And I also developed 10 video clips because I figured not everybody wants to look at a book. Some people would rather look at video. So I wanted to have an option for those who would be more engaged um, in video. And each of the videos uh, led each of the people through a different step in the stories process. And um, I, I was just reaching out to people that I knew, people that um, I was friends with, people who I was friends with who had children, children who I knew and had relationships with, whether as a mentor or as just um, a support, a family member. And I was like, hey, can you be in like a video or pictures? Cause I'm, I'm making these books and doing these videos. And they're like, I don't know, never done this before. Well, I was able to, to get a date where we did a, um, a filming session. Um, so I, we shot the films and then we also took pictures. And those are the pictures and the videos that go along with the first two sets of stories resources. Um, and we, we did the video shoot in Kensington. Um, I actually had an art studio in Kensington. Um, and we had, so we found this space. It was not an ideal space by any means. Um, Things were falling apart inside, things were falling apart outside. Um, and and it, it's actually where the studio is located, it's actually right in the center of Philadelphia's opioid epidemic. And that's where I was creating art. So I figured, you know, I, I didn't think about it at the time, but looking back, it's like, what better place for uh, the birth of a trauma intervention is in the middle of trauma. 
So as we were starting filming, there was a garage next to the artist studio buildings. And then you hear like, vroom, vroom, vroom. Um, and I was like, oh no, this is going to get picked up in the video. So um, everyone was like, oh no, what do we do? And I was like, you know, what? I'm going to go out and ask. So I went to the guy that um, ran the garage next door and I said, I am so sorry to bother you, but um, we are trying to do a video shoot. And um, the goal of the videos is to help youth who've been through trauma. And is there any way that um, that you can keep it just a little bit quieter so that we can film? And I'll make sure I come back out and tell you when we're finished. And he's like, sure. So we come back in, we do the filming. Um, I have people, um, adults, kids, teenagers coming in. Um, we had we had soft pretzels. We had some snacks for people coming in and out. And um, and we filmed it. And, and there was a uh, we we put up a green screen in the middle of kind of this. It's really a crumbling warehouse, to be honest. Um, but you can't even tell that it was in the middle of a crumbling warehouse when you look at the videos because, you know, with creativity, some expertise from the from the filmmaker, we were able to make it work. Um, so I did my first stories training at UPenn and I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. This was always a dream of mine to get a, a to get a degree from an Ivy League university. And now not only am I getting the degree, but I'm teaching people about what I created at this Ivy League university. It's like this surreal experience, something that I never imagined. Um, it was just such a good feeling. So I had assembled my dissertation committee and they had been supporting me throughout the process of developing stories and looking at my literature review. And um, something that was really helpful that my dissertation chair shared with me, my dissertation chair was um, Torji Gosi. And he's a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. And he said, you have to be able to expand and also um, you have to be able to expand and condense any idea that you have. So you have to be able to explain stories and in uh, 10 hours. You also have to be able to explain it in three. You have to be able to say it to somebody in the elevator and you have to be able to explain it to a kid. And so that that expertise, that knowledge has really stuck with me. And whatever I'm developing, I always think about ways to expand things, ways to contract things. Um, and I was preparing for my dissertation defense. So um, TJ, Torji Gosi, as well as Sandy Bloom and Christine Catois were a part of my dissertation committee. And I was excited, I was ready. It was really difficult for us to find a date, but um, we, figured, we figured the date out. And um, I'm like, all right, I'm excited, I'm ready. I had a shirt with, with the stories logo on it. Oh, I have to tell you all. So um, people ask me this question a lot. Why did I name stories, stories? And um, uh, for those of you who've seen the logo, it's stories with the Z. So uh, as I was developing the intervention, it didn't have a name at first. And I had this long list of really complicated names because I wanted to be like all of these other um, trauma interventions that have acronyms and really long technical sounding names. And I just was looking at it. I was like, this is dumb. Nope, that's dumb. Nope, nope, nope. I was just looking through my list. I was crossing everything out and balling up sheets of paper. And then I'm like, what's the point here? I'm like, the point is to help people tell their stories. That's what I'm going to name it. Stories with the Z, because it's like narratives or stories with the twist. So um, that's where the name stories came from. So yeah, so I was, I was excited to be able to pre present this um, final work. And then I found out the weekend before my dissertation defense that I was going to have to write 
another paper about my intervention. I couldn't believe it. I thought I was finished and I wasn't finished. And I found out about this on Thursday. And I want to say that my dissertation defense was on like that Tuesday. So that weekend I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I don't remember sleeping. I don't remember eating. All I remember is sitting on the couch typing and typing and typing and printing things off and marking things up with a red pen, um, taking things apart, putting them back together again. And I made it. I did it. And being in my dissertation defense and hearing these people with so many years of expertise and experience um, and knowledge and wisdom tell me that what I had created was a good idea that this was going to be powerful and it was going to shape and transform lives. Um, it was so surreal. I Like my heart just thinking about how my heart felt in that moment um, when they said, congratulations, you're now officially a doctor of social work. Um, and hearing hearing <laughs> Dr. Megan Carreto, like that was, that was an unreal experience to say that I had earned my doctorate. And not only had I earned my doctorate, I earned my doctorate at an Ivy League institution, even as I was experiencing multiple forms of trauma, even as I was trying to find my own hope, even as I was battling against trauma memories um, from the past, uh, experiencing trauma in the present, battling all of these different voices in my head telling me that I couldn't do it, but then seeing myself get to that point where I, I'm like, I can do it. And I did it. Um, that was such an incredible feeling. So I wish that I could tell you that after that point, everything was uphill. It hasn't been uphill. I have to be honest with you. So I have always loved creating resources. I love providing trainings to people, but people are not knocking down the door to say, hey, you have an idea, let's fund it. So part of the challenge has been not that I haven't had support. I've had I've had so much support. Um, if I did not have support from some of the leading um, theorists, trauma theorists in the country, in the world, if people were not spreading the word about my work, I know that I wouldn't have um, gotten this far. It's really been about people um, spreading the word, networking, um, and also us just connecting and identifying ways to collaborate. If it was not for that, I know that things would not have gotten to the point that they are now. Um, or it might have taken much longer for things to get to the point where they are now. But um, but I've had to scrape my way <laughs> to to pay for resources. Um, I've I've been I'm also the person. So if you look at my resources, you'll see all these different pictures. They're like stock photos, and I took all of those, and I took all of those all different sections of the city. Um, I I have done my own editing for the books. I have um, worked collaboratively with a graphic designer and envisioned how I wanted things to look. And I've worked collaboratively with artists and said, this is the vision for this page. And this is what we want to accomplish in this section. It hasn't been easy. I've, I've been juggling multiple jobs and also trying to maintain my vision um, for how to support trauma-exposed youth as they create voice and honor their narratives. Um, I, I'm always a fighter, so I'm always that person that, despite the barriers, despite the challenges, I'm going to find a way and I'm going to scrape my way um, to the top. I think about uh, one of my favorite characters is Batman, and I think about Batman and the Dark Knight Rises because he's in this pit, and it's a pit that no one has ever escaped from. If you haven't seen the movie, you got to see it. It's amazing. Um, 
So he he gets out of this pit that no one's ever escaped from. And that's, I love that part because I feel like that's me. It's like these situations that um, I shouldn't have been able to climb out of somehow uh, with the strength, the courage, um, the support. I was able to do that. And then um, I never forget, I never forget those moments. Those moments definitely motivate me. And those, those moments definitely humble me. So since the development of the original stories resources, I have since created nine resource books, which every resource book that comes out, I'm just in awe and amazed at all of the different um, components that are able to, that I'm just excited and amazed by all the different components that come together, um, how I'm able to to, uh, feed off of the strengths of other artists and incorporate their work into each project into a unique way. I've developed um, 20 training programs, which um, span from things like trauma foundations or trauma basics to trauma-informed de-escalation. I'm creating a trauma training right now. Um, It's on trauma and youth development for the Philadelphia Police Department. Um, I have created uh, presentations on creativity, trauma and healing, on creativity, destruction and trauma, on... um, the different stories programs. So stories, a guide for therapists, stories, a do-it-yourself guide, stories, a group treatment guide, um, stories, a feelings guide. And I'm also hoping to create um, another resource in the near future, one that one that focuses on coping. So as I think about where I've been, um, I've been up, I've been down, I've been excited, I've been defeated, I've been strong and I've been weak. I've been confident and I've been afraid. Um, and then when I think about where I am now, I share some of those same feelings. Um, I'm feeling a little bit more confident. I'm feeling a little bit more empowered than I was at the beginning. Um, I still experience some doubt, but I'm also hopeful. Hopeful that um, the 5,000 people that I had the opportunity to provide training to, I'm just, I'm celebrating that right now. So Stories is celebrating a five-year anniversary. And also we've reached our 5,000 training mark, which if you had told me at the beginning that this is where things would end up, I would have never believed you, but I'm so excited. I'm so grateful. I'm so humbled for how things have grown and developed. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that those 5,000 people are also taking the knowledge, the information that they've learned about trauma, about narratives, about creativity, about healing, um, and that they are also um, supporting youth, children, families, in trauma-informed ways as they support them in highlighting not only their stories of adversity, but also their stories of strength and resilience. So um, this work has taken a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears, a lot of rejection, but also a lot of acceptance. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you for listening and for your ongoing support. And remember, for every story of trauma, there are always stories of strength and resilience. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there's always a story of strength and resilience.